Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. It's always easier to get into a deal than it is to get out of one that isn't performing right. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's best ever guests as they share it with you. It's the best ever advice with none of the fluff. Let's go. Heard of crowdfunding and still curious about how you can benefit from it? Well, we've got a step-by-step guide put together just for you by the best ever team and patch of land, the industry's leading crowdfunding experts. The best crowdfunding crash course ever, episodes 152, 159, 166, and 173 will provide you all you need to know to get started and begin benefiting immediately. Whether it's getting access to funds for your project or passively investing in other people's deals. The time is now to get started with Patch of Land. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever to grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, how you doing? I'm Joe Fairless. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. And we are going to have an amazing conversation today with a, an accomplished real estate investor, Brian Burke, who's joining us from Santa Rosa, California. How you doing, Brian? Doing great. How are you? I am doing great as well and uh, excited to have this conversation with you because you are focused on single and multifamily um, acquisitions and uh, have many more transactions under your belt than I do, but we do have the same focus. So I'm excited to learn learn about you. And one thing we don't have in common, though, is that I have never flown a stunt plane before. So props to you for that. <laughs> yes, I have. And that was a that was a thrill. Uh, flying upside down and uh, and sideways is something that not many people get to do. It's like a roller coaster without a track. No, no. So, some of us uh, have have that analogy in our businesses, but not in actuality, right? That's right. That's right. Well, Brian, a little bit about Brian before he gets into his background and what he's doing now. He is the co-founder and managing director of Praxis Residential. He's flipping currently, he's flipping 25 to 30 houses a year. He has purchased nearly 700 properties in combined value uh, in excess of 200 million bucks. Uh, as we mentioned before, he's an avid aviator who flies airplanes, helicopters, and the crazy stump planes. 
And he is, I think you, you mentioned prior to the show, you're in the middle of buying a, a 276 unit, if I was writing that down as fast as you were talking. But you can get into that in a little bit. And uh, actually, how about this be a little bit? So you want to give you the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background than what you're focused on now? Yeah, my focus is uh, primarily on uh, large multifamily assets, uh, over 100 units in size. Even though uh, I, I'm in that space where we uh, focus on larger assets, I still haven't lost sight of my roots. And where I came from in this business was in single family acquisitions, buying, fixing up and reselling houses, just the basic single family flip that so many people are familiar with. And I've done about uh, 600 of those. And uh, I still do it to this day. It's uh, I guess once it's in your blood, it just never leaves, right, Joe? That's true. That's very true. You've done 600 flips, and you've evolved the business from the flipping to now you know 100 plus unit properties uh, or apartment communities. What is your involvement right now with the flips? Like, what what are you specifically doing on those flips? I specifically say, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have a great team uh, that I've built over the years. So I have acquisitions managers uh, that uh, that are out there seeking the uh, the properties to acquire. I have uh, rehab managers that are responsible for overseeing the construction phase, and I've got uh, sales managers who are responsible for overseeing the resale. Uh, my job is to make sure that the whole thing flows smoothly. Everything's well capitalized. And uh, and that we're employing the systems that I've built over the years to make sure that it uh, that it runs smoothly and profitably. And what are the, some of those systems for the the flippers out there who are looking to kind of scale their business and and put in those systems so that they can kind of achieve some of the 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 success in in doing more deals on a on a more a higher number volume. Well, you know, for me, the the hardest part of the the flipping business is the acquisition side, and so for me, it was a matter of streamlining the acquisitions process to the best I could. Our primary focus is on acquiring properties at the courthouse steps. So that requires a very systematic and thorough approach uh, to acquisitions, and it has to be very systematized. Without having any kind of uh, organization, uh, you just get disorganized, completely lose focus of what's going to auction on a particular day, and it makes the acquisitions uh, process pretty tough. So for me, it was about uh, I wrote my own software so that I could uh, – I did this years and years ago before there was even the internet and you had all the websites that track foreclosures. You know, I still do it old school. I use software that I wrote. Uh, we enter information directly from the public records into a centralized database so that everybody out in the field knows exactly what's going to auction and when and where and, and what it is and incorporates all the drive-by notes and everything with it. So that's just what it's all about. It's all about having information and systems. Let's follow that thread a little bit more. So you, you have a, a database, a central database, where you have all the information. It sends, that, sends it out to people in the field. Uh, then what happens? Yeah, then the the field personnel go out and do drive-bys of the house, and uh, they have a, a checklist format that they go through and and note the condition of the house and rehab budgets and so on, and that goes into the data structure where we then uh, value the house, set bidding limits, and then the field bidders that are out in the field can uh, log into a site that has real-time data for them so they can see how much they can pay, and then their job is to... Uh, uh, to bid and acquire the property, stick to the limits, be disciplined, don't overpay, don't get in bidding wars, uh, and uh, and acquire the property, and then uh, and then when they turn it over to the rehab team. And how many markets are you in? Do you have these these bidders in? 
Yeah, we're in 13 counties, but primarily our, uh, our our primary stomping grounds, probably six or seven counties for the courthouse steps. And then we have a number of other counties that we participate in the marketplace via uh, MLS uh, listings. And, you know, we've tried the direct mail postcard approach and so on as well. So we've, we've got a pretty sizable footprint in the California, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Now let's switch gears and let's talk about multifamily. What what's the deal that you're working on right now? Right now I'm buying uh, almost 300 units. Uh, it's in uh, the uh, Houston, Texas market. It's a uh, Class C multifamily. It's that classic one that everybody wants and can never find. It's that Class C property in a Class B area that needs a complete interior and exterior rehab. And uh, it, it's tough to find those. And we've we've been looking for a long time. I've underwritten. About 160, maybe more uh, properties since my last acquisition uh, before finding this one. So uh, we think it's a really good score. Let's talk about the process of acquisition and underwriting. What is your specialty? You said you wrote the the software whenever you know the software just wasn't readily available, just because you saw a need and, and you created it. Yeah, I, I think we all have certain things that we're good at and certain things we are, we're not good at probably because we don't like to be good at it because we don't enjoy it as much. So what do you enjoy and what are you really good at? I enjoy coming up in, uh, with systems and developing uh, a unique and thorough approach to acquisitions. Uh, so for for the sing, single family side, I, I developed a data structure that allows us to be really refined. But on the multifamily side, I had to develop a financial model that allows us to uh, be extremely accurate in not only predicting future uh, potential cash flows, but also very accurately portraying what those cash flows are going to look like at the investor level and, and have the ability to manipulate a number of variables uh, throughout the acquisition process and instantly see how those changes in variables will impact our investors. You know, our specialty has been and always will be to deliver high uh, rates of return to our investors with a minimal amount of risk. And, and the only way that we can do that is to accurately define and conservatively underwrite uh, what those cash flows are going to look like. Let's talk about this 300 unit and use some of these examples. So first, how did you find this 300? Well, it's not the three. It's like what? Two, what did you say? 276? Yeah, 276 units. So how did you find the 276 unit? Found it through broker relationships. I've um, when, when we go into a market, one of the first things we, we need to do is we need to identify a, a good property management company that specializes in the type of property and the size of property that we're interested in. And, and secondly, uh, we have to get to know who all the brokers are that are selling those assets. And in any given market, when you're in that size, uh, there's, a, there's a fairly limited number of uh, brokerage groups that specialize in that product type and, and pretty much do all the deals. And, and we get to know uh, all those guys and, and they know us and we have a track record in the industry. So uh, by being known and, and by knowing them, uh, we get access to uh, to what's going on. So you know, every day I, I get pitched probably five or 10 uh, potential acquisitions and, and I, I look at every one of them and I discard uh, eight out of 10 of them. And then the other two, we underwrite and, uh, and discard most of those. Let's talk about those 10. You're getting 10 a day. How are you able to quickly run the numbers to discard the eight and then know the two that you want to look further into? 
I, I don't even have to anymore. I've gotten to the point where I can just tell by looking at what it is, whether or not it's going to uh, be one of the two I underwrite or the eight that I trash. Primarily, our first our first uh, test is uh, is size, type, and location. So uh, if it's not in a place where I want to own, uh, I discard it. If it's not uh, the size I want, if it's uh, 80 units or 600 units, I can discard it. Uh, if it meets our sizing criteria, then the next thing I'm looking at is what's the uh, what's the value add story behind the acquisition? Is is this a, a property that's fully stabilized? Somebody's already come in and fixed it up, uh, and now the story is just a simple market play where you're relying on rental increases, or is this a play where? Uh, you can actually make physical or managerial improvements to the property to force the value. So I'm looking for that second category. And you mentioned initially size, type, and location. Can you, and you, you talked about size, you talked about location. Can you elaborate on type? Yeah, type would be uh, if it's a, a brand new Class A property that was built last year, I probably don't have much interest. If it was built in the 50s, I probably don't have much interest. But if it's a 70s or 80s or perhaps 90s uh, vintage, uh, that that would that would be of interest to me. So the next thing I'm going to look at is uh, uh, what type of construction does it have? What kind of heating uh, does it have? What kind of uh, electric meter? So if it's master metered with a chiller and a flat roof, it it misses all three of my uh, uh, criteria, and and I, I I discard that as well. Can you talk about what master meter, what a chiller and uh, flat, you know, versus uh, and flat versus pitched roofs? Yeah, I I just have a preference for pitched roofs. It doesn't mean we won't do a flat roof deal. In fact, we've done our share of uh, flat roof deals, but it's uh, it's it's not a hard and fast criteria. But I have a preference for pitched roofs. Uh, flat roofs tend to leak more if they've been replaced recently. Then that's less of a problem. Or if they're bad and I know I have to replace them. I can mitigate the issue. Um, on the uh, the chillers, I, I prefer individual uh, heating a uh, heating and AC units uh, as opposed to a chiller, which is just a one large system that provides the cooling for the entire property. Uh, those are very expensive to replace, so I tend to uh, shy away from those. Uh, and um, we're just we're we're really just kind of focusing on 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 quality and and trying to discard the, the ones that are of lesser quality. And, and master meter is another one. Uh, they, uh, a master meter means there's one electric meter and you pay the bill and then uh, all the tenants uh, pay you. And uh, I'd rather have them paying the electric utility directly. So you look at the size, the type, the location. Then you look to see what the value-add story behind the acquisition. But up until this point, it doesn't sound like you've looked at any of the numbers you're just looking at the profile and the story is that correct that's it yeah there you know there's a there's a lot of things that that uh come into play in determining the success of an investment and you know one is the real estate two is the sponsor that's backing the deal in 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 the case of ours would be us me uh, and then the third is the the financials. So there's no point in me even getting to the financials if I can't solve problem number one and problem number two. Well, the sponsor issue that's that's solved. I, I know we're competent, and our track record shows that and proves it. Uh, the real estate is the next test. If the real estate passes, then I move on to the numbers. There's no no sense in doing it the other way. 
So now with the uh, well, with the sponsor backing deal, I do, do you also take into account? Well, do you self manage in all your markets? Or do you? It sounds like you know you said the first one of the first team members is a property management company. Do you work with local third party property management companies? Yeah, we always go look at third party management companies that have experience and track record in the area that we're uh, buying and of the property type and size that we're buying. Okay, so when you you talk about the success success for investments, real estate, you know the the characteristics of the the piece of real estate, the sponsor of the backing deal. Do you also factor in the team members? I, I factor in the team members of our management company for sure. But uh, you know, as far as sponsor goes, uh, when when you're looking at it from the investor side, and you know we have to we have to have investors invest in all of our acquisitions. So. What's important for the investor to know is that Praxis, the sponsor, is solid. So that that problem we we have we have that solved. The next thing they need to know is is the real estate worth owning. So that's my first question I have to answer. And the third question that we have to answer is is this financially viable? So that's the last one. And you know I used to do it the other way around. I used to every time I would get uh, a property presented to me, the first thing I would do is I was under I'd underwrite the numbers. And if the numbers look good, then I'd want to go further and dig deeper. But I just can't do that anymore. Uh, now I've gotten to the point where I, I'm so selective that first I look at the real estate and then I look at the numbers when in reality the success of the deal is probably 75% numbers and 25% real estate. But when you're looking at as many acquisitions as I am, you have to be able to filter it faster than that. And it takes too long to do a thorough financial analysis. It's uh, a lot faster to discard them for other reasons first. What are the key pieces of information that you need to have in order to do the financials, assuming it passes the first two tests? Yeah, assuming that we get past that and, and I, I, can, uh, I can accept the real estate component, uh, then I move on to the financial analysis. And for the financial analysis, the broker will usually have put together an offering circular on the property, which will describe uh, what the property is and what the opportunity is and so on. So I read through that to kind of get the story of the deal. Uh, the next step is uh, they. Uh, I'll ask for a rent roll and trailing 12-month financials broken down by month, and then I'll analyze uh, that rent roll and those trailing financials to to make assumptions and predictions of what the property is going to do under our ownership. And is that all you need? That's all I need. Uh, that's that's enough for me to at least get to that phase and determine whether or not we want to uh, pursue it any further. If it uh, if it looks like there's something there. Then my next step is I have a, an introductory call with the broker and, uh, and I ask a series of questions about the acquisition and about the asset and why the seller is selling, what the backstory is and so on. Uh, and then, uh, if, uh, then I'll top off the underwriting, fine tune everything and then see if, uh, see if there's any reason to, uh, to write an offer. What if they don't have either the rent roll, you know, cause I've, I've come across this before where like, oh, this owner is old school. They have, they handwrite everything and they, they deposit everything in cash. What if you come across that where they don't have a rent roll or, tra- or trailing financials? Yeah, you're, you're right. I see those two every once in a while and they're really tough to underwrite. Uh, you've got to make a lot of assumptions, but those can also be some of your best acquisitions because it, since it is hard to figure out everything that's hard, uh, or, or I should say the other way around, everything worth doing is hard, right? So if you can if you can put the pieces of that puzzle together 
you could make a very smart acquisition. And in fact, we've bought a couple deals like that where uh, foreclosed assets that came back, the lender has them, they don't know much about it, they don't have a lot of trailing information because they've only had it a couple months, former owner didn't give them anything, they've built a rent roll uh, you know, by basically digging through the leases and assembling the data. Uh, and you can reconstruct it, and, and that's just what it is. It's just a project of reconstruction. <laughs> I want to go back to your size, type, and location qualifiers. Why are those your qualifiers? Why is uh, why do you look for something that's a hundred and plus, hundred plus units? Why do you look for? You explain the the heating and uh, you know, master metered stuff. You don't you don't have to get into that. But what location are you looking for specifically as well? So I guess why a hundred plus and what locations are you looking for? Yeah, uh, on the hundred plus, I, it, there's just an economy of scale factor that comes into play when you're it, when you're doing ones that are smaller than a hundred units. Your your economies of scale are relatively low as it relates to uh, employee staffing and and other fixed costs. Uh, and and there are a lot of fixed costs in multifamily that regardless of how many units you have, you're you're paying a, a certain amount of money for some certain things like phone lines and stuff. And you can uh, you can amortize that cost over more units on larger properties. So I've found that you know a hundred seems to kind of be you know the the minimum threshold for me to find something that gives me the economy scale I'm looking for. Doesn't mean we haven't done smaller ones. I have done smaller ones, especially ones where we can get in there completely turn the property around relatively quickly and resell it, where we don't have to worry about the economies of scale. We're really doing more of an arbitrage play. But if we're going to own it long term, I, I, I want uh, more economy of scale. On the location side, I, I stay out of war zones. I, I like class B neighborhoods or class A or B neighborhoods. Uh, class C neighborhoods are okay uh, under the right circumstances. I, I don't even bother with class neighborhoods. I've been there and done that. It got the T-shirt. Got it stolen from you? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> got the T-shirt, then got it ripped off my back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I just we're just more selective now. And, you know, when you're first starting out, sometimes you you take chances on things that, uh, you know, you might not take chances on when you don't need to later on down the line. And I'm kind of past that point in my uh, in my career where, you know, I've made my rookie mistakes and, you know, all those things. And, and now I can just focus on uh, on doing what's going to make my investors the most money. What type of returns do your investors look for? You know, that's a really good question. It's all over the board. I I like to think that if we can if we can produce a net return to the investors uh, of fifteen percent or greater uh, IRR calculation, uh, that we can attract enough capital to fund most any acquisition that we'd want to undertake doesn't mean that you don't have some investors that say, uh, you know, I'm only interested if you get a 20. And that doesn't mean that we don't have some people that aren't happy as can be if they would get anything north of an eight. But we shoot for a a happy medium in between there. And uh, and we've been pretty successful at doing that. And and fortunately for us, you know, one of the things that I, I think hurts newer sponsors is Without having a proven track record, all you have is what you say you're going to do. And it's hard to attract capital based upon what you say you're going to do. So fortunately for us, we've had assets that have fully cycled. Uh, we've bought, fixed up, held, and sold. 
uh, and and we've uh, we've actually banked those returns and can show uh, the uh, relationship between what we said was going to happen and what actually happened. And, uh, and that actually speaks very, very loudly. So now when we go out to our investor base and, and we say we think this is going to do a 15 IRR, uh, we don't get questioned about it too much because uh, we've shown that uh, our forecasting uh, capability is pretty good. How do you calculate IRR? Use Excel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. There's no way to there's no way to calculate IRR manually, but uh I've built a pretty sophisticated Excel model for our multifamily acquisitions that allows us to take the income stream from the proper 10-year basis and essentially I can look at what the IRR would be at, at any point during the hold period if we were to exit. So I can see every year uh, if we exit in any year, what the IRR would be. And I also get to see as it filters all the way down to the investor level, even after promotes and fees and whatever else that are uh, that are the nature of uh, the syndicating business, I can see the IRR net to that investor. And so what it's taking is it's taking the investment that the investor puts out, all the returns that they get each and every month, it actually breaks it down by the month, and then uh, and then it calculates the internal rate of return based on those outgoing and incoming cash flows. If an investor is working on, on multifamily deals and they're looking to bring in investors uh, or people to, to fund their deal, or if they are currently doing syndications, where would you recommend they get that type of document that uh, shows them you know, how to calculate the internal rate of return for their investors? That's a great question. You, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult and misunderstood concept, and a lot of people don't quite understand IRR and how it works, although it's very easy to program an IRR calculation into an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, the difficulty is in laying it out properly and actually getting those income figures. And, you know, I, I, I don't know really where to tell people to, to begin. I, uh, I first bought an analysis program put out by a company called Real Data, and I used that for a number of years to calculate uh, investors' IRRs and property performance. Ultimately, I just found that if I was going to be successful in this business to the level that that uh, I wanted to, I was going to have to write my own uh, software. And, and ultimately, I ended up spending a lot of time in doing that. Uh, and now I've got a model that's custom built by me that uh, that uh, that lays everything out uh, all the way from the initial rent payment all the way down to the investor's distribution. And I can see how those cash flows uh, go from A to B to C. So if you're just starting out, it's why I recommend for most people that you start small and, uh, you know, start with a syndication where you're not raising much money and you're not doing a very large deal, something that's just outside of your comfort zone, but yet not very far outside of your comfort zone. So if you've got experience doing a fourplex, you know, maybe your next move is to buy a 10 unit, uh, get some practice with how all of this works, because there really isn't a book or a course or anything that teaches you how to do this. Brian, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Well, I think uh, a concept that is widely misunderstood in the realm of newer income property investing is cap rates. Uh, many people experience confusion calculating cap rates. And, and there's, of course, there's plenty of resources uh, where you can get educated on how to calculate a cap rate. But I think my best real estate investing advice ever would relate to how you actually use a cap rate. Uh, 
Uh, I, I hear all the time on various forums and from other investors, they, they say uh, that they want to buy property at a certain cap rate. They'll say, I want to buy at a 10 cap. Or sometimes you'll hear a broker ask, what cap rate are you looking for? And they're expecting you to tell them, you know, I want to buy a property at an 8 cap. My advice is that the answer to that question is completely irrelevant. Uh, and whatever cap rate you want uh, or think you want is also irrelevant. And stop focusing so much on cap rate. Uh, you know, even, you know, cap, cap rate on its, on its face doesn't define a deal. It's, uh, well, let me just illustrate my point for any given property. I can give you several different cap rates. I can take the trailing 12 income, the trailing three income with trailing 12 expenses annualized next year's net operating income. And then with any of those categories, we can either add or, uh, include or, or exclude, uh, capital expenditure reserves and, that gives you six different cap rates. For any set of financials you show me, I can give you six different cap rates. So if we can get on the same page and agree that cap rate is meaningless in terms of acquisition, this is how I would use it. I say that you use cap rate to price your exit, not your acquisition. Knowing what you will sell the property for before you even buy it is the first question you need to answer because you, you make your money when you buy. Uh, when you sell, all you're doing is collecting your paycheck. So how much you'll get paid uh, during the hold period and how much you'll get paid on the exit is all added up together. And from those numbers, you'll calculate your IRR. Your IRR is the measure of the quality of the investment. So my advice is stop focusing on cap rate, focus on internal rate of return, and you'll need cap rate only as uh, the way to value how much you'll sell the property for because that cash flow from that sale will be part of your IRR calculation. Focus on the, the numbers you calculate getting the to get the internal rate of return. Why is the internal rate of return the focus versus cash on cash? Most people want to know what the true return is on their investment. Is it at least, well, let me rephrase that accredited investors will want to know what the uh, what the true uh, return is on their investment. Now, investors that aren't sophisticated in investing in private placements or real estate don't uh, have the same level of um, understanding of internal rate of return as uh, the accredited investors do. So if you're looking to acquire large multifamily properties, it's most likely uh, that you're going to need the uh, capital of other people to help you make those acquisitions. And when you're looking for that capital, you're going to be looking for that capital from accredited investors. And accredited investors are going to want to know their internal rate of return. They're not necessarily as concerned with cash on cash because they realize that part of the equation for them is uh, the exit and how much you get when you uh, in the reversion and how much you get along the way, and when you get the timing of those payments. So cash on cash, to me, is more used by uh, less uh, experienced operators. And, and if that's the measure that you're using, and you show that to an accredited investor, it's going like, to be like wearing a, a big hat that says, I'm new. And you don't want to <laughs> wear that hat when you're seeking capital. And if you have the I'm new t-shirt, then just go to a Class D neighborhood, and they'll rip that off, and, and you won't have to worry about having that t-shirt exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you ready for the best ever lightning round? Okay, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. 
crowdfunding. You've heard about it, and now it's time to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, is a leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Brian, what's the best ever book you've read? I think that um, some of the, the great books are titles you probably hear all the time on your show. Uh, my favorites uh, are The Art of the Deal. Uh, Donald Trump uh, wrote that a long time ago. And of course, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, those are the books that got me motivated and uh, and helped me get going a long time ago. Uh, once I got going, I kind of ran out of time to read books, and lately I haven't been. Uh, but I'm challenging myself. This year I've actually read a few books, but uh, I, I can't call any of them the best ever. They were good, but uh, uh, they, they haven't dethroned uh, the art of the deal in Rich Dad, Poor Dad in my book. All right. Well, Rich Dad, Poor Dad's author, Robert K. Saki, was on the show, episode 262, for Best Ever listeners. Go check that out. And uh, I'm sure Donald Trump will be on the show sometime in the future. Best Ever Personal Growth Experience, and what would you learn from it? I think that the financial collapse of 2009 taught me a lot of lessons. Uh, I I learned a lot about underwriting a property uh, with resistance to the worst-case scenario, Uh, I learned how to survive the worst real estate cycle since the Great Depression. And I I learned that aligning myself with the right people uh, could grow my business larger than I I ever would have imagined. Best ever deal you've done? That's a tough one. I've I've bought over 700 properties. I've had my share of really good ones. But uh, I think the best one that I could point to right now is probably a a 140-unit apartment complex that I bought four years ago. For 5.3 million, and I sold it last month for 9.6 million. You know, I, although the deal I'm closing on next month could turn out to be my best uh, deal ever. <laughs> what was the cause of the the five to nine million increase? It was expert uh, management and oversight of the investment, coupled with a, a phenomenal acquisition. <laughs> There you go, of course. (laughs) That and uh, a a great rehab, rents that were going up quickly, and a little bit of help from the market. Best ever way you like to give back? I think for me it's uh, by contributing my knowledge to those who need it. And I spend a lot of time on uh, biggerpockets.com. It's an internet website where uh, real estate investors discuss uh, all kinds of topics uh, related to real estate, and, and I, I like to participate in that forum and, and help out when I can and uh, give people some of the benefit of the experiences that I've had. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? I'm most excited about our 276 units that we're acquiring. Uh, I, I've been looking for a project like this for a long time. It's really run down. It's ugly. It's tired. It's worn out. Uh, and, and we get to transform this property to compete with class A and B product, which is right nearby. And, and that's going to be an amazing experience. And I can't wait to actually document that with some before and after uh, photos and videos and and uh, and show everybody what I've been doing all this time because I haven't been very good about taking a lot of pictures of my previous ones. <laughs> Let's say you have that property. How, how long are you, is the anticipated hold period for the property? We have a really good shot at being in and out of it in three years. But uh, I've, I've forecast it for a 10-year hold with a three-year cash-out refi. And and the reason that I did that is because we don't really 
know exactly where we are in the multifamily real estate cycle right now. And I have some suspicions that we could be in the uh, sixth inning or so of a nine inning game. And I don't want to find myself in three years in the ninth or 10th inning and realize that, uh, you know, the cycle uh, outpaced our ability to turn the property and, and have it fully stabilized. So we want the ability to hold through an entire cycle and sell at the next market cycle peak. So we have a 10 year horizon, but if the conditions are right uh, at year two, three or four, there's a very high likelihood that we'll cycle out of that at that point in time. Let's say in the first three years, you, you've got the property um, and you're about to sell it. Well, within those three years, how many days have you been in Houston at the property? Zero. I'm fortunate that we uh, I have an, an office in Austin and uh, my partner in my multifamily business is located there. So uh, his, his responsibility is to do the on the ground part, supervise the construction, supervise the asset and the property manager and make sure that everybody's doing their job. Uh, I participate in the conference calls where we discuss that on a weekly basis. Uh, but fortunately for me, uh, I don't get out much. I, I'm here in the office underwriting new acquisitions, designing the financial models and, and looking for new properties to buy and managing the finance and sale of those properties. Uh, all the on the ground stuff uh, I, I don't have to focus on. I get uh, my partner to, to pitch in there. Best ever quote. I hear this all the time on uh, on Donald Trump's show. He says, never give up. And, and I've said that so many times I've lost count. I just think that uh, no matter what, if it's important to you, you have to pursue it. You can never give up. Uh, and, and I heard someone say once that you can never cross the ocean unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Ah, yeah, very true. You want to take the island, you burn the boat, right? I've heard that. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, Tony Robbins is famous for saying that one. Oh yeah, oh, I, I love my Tony. <laughs> <laughs> What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Biggest mistake er, early in my career in large multifamily complexes, I didn't understand the power of financial underwriting and modeling, and and I didn't understand the weight of uh, uh, economic vacancy. Uh, when you've been in the single family business and you're renting houses and small buildings like fourplexes and so on, you, you essentially tend to focus only on physical vacancy. Uh, it, you'll, you'll see it all the time out there. It's really common for people to use a 5% vacancy factor or you know, maybe a little bit more or a little less depending upon the market and the strength of the market. Uh, economic vacancy uh, accounts for numerous other factors of loss, such as leases that aren't at full market rents and concessions given to tenants on a one-time or recurring basis, credit losses from tenants that skip or don't pay, uh, non-revenue losses from model units and employee units and so on. I wasn't exactly clear on all those concepts when I first got into acquiring large multifamily uh, so when the uh, economy tanked or when the real estate tanked in 2006, uh, I was looking for the next the next play to make. And I've managed to survive a lot of market cycles. So I figured that single family wasn't going to do me much good for a couple of years. I needed to look for something else. So I, I, I really took a liking to large multifamily. But I still was a little bit unclear on all this concept of economic vacancy. So when I located a property, I bought one in 2008, 
I bought it for half of what the last guy bought it for. So I thought I was doing really good. Uh, but what I didn't realize was, is that the real estate market and the financial world were collapsing at different times. So real estate had already collapsed, but the economy didn't collapse until 2008. So probably about six months after I bought this, uh, this one asset. That economic vacancy component that I so vastly underestimated became really important when the economy collapsed because now you had a situation where you're renting units out for less than what was your market rate because you need to attract tenants. You have more tenants that aren't paying, so you have a lot higher credit losses. Uh, and uh, those uh, those components of economic vacancy began to eat me alive. And I, I came to the point where the property uh, income was covering the operating expenses, but there wasn't enough to cover the debt service. So I ended up servicing a million and a half dollar loan out of my own pocket for two or three years during the bottom of the uh, economic collapse, which was a very expensive thing for me to do. And uh, as they say in, uh, you know, education is expensive, and the more you pay for that education, the more you learn. And uh, I, I paid more than I could for a Harvard uh, PhD, <laughs> but I think I learned more than I would have learned, you know, if I went to the best business school in the world. <laughs> Did I just hear that you serviced $1.5 million loan out of your own pocket for how long? I did that for three years. And, uh, you know, there was just no way. I'd never had a deal where my investors lost money and I wasn't about to start now. So, yeah, I serviced that loan out of my own pocket just to make sure that we could hold on into the other side. And, you know, fortunately, everything ended up working out. We, you know, we managed to keep the property and hang on to it. And, uh, and I learned such a valuable lesson that now my underwriting is so conservative that people tease me all the time saying, oh, you're the guy that's never going to buy a deal because your underwriting is just too conservative. So uh, I, I never hear criticism any, at all from people saying that uh, my uh, underwriting is uh, too aggressive or my assumptions are too lofty. <laughs> <laughs> does that mean one point that you were servicing the $1.5 million loan? Does, how much were you paying on a monthly basis for three years? 15000 a month. So you were paying $15,000 a month for three years? Yeah, for three years, yeah. Not a fun thing to do. I, I highly recommend against doing that. <laughs> so it's uh, it's very important, you know. So here, so here was the lesson, and if I were to sum it all up, I learned a couple of lessons. You know, one thing is, why did I do it? And, you know, I'd rather be... I'd rather be the guy that never buys a deal than buys a bad deal because one thing is one thing that I've learned out of 25 years in this business is that it's always easier to get into a deal than it is to get out of one that isn't performing right. So I would rather not buy anything uh, than buy a bad deal. Uh, so that's that's kind of rule number one in my book and that's why I'm so picky and why I told you I throw out a lot of properties before I even look at the numbers. Another thing that's really important is that I'd rather buy nothing and lose half of my investors by having them go somewhere else than buy a bad deal and lose half of my investors' money. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Wow, these are, my God, my friend, these are <laughs> some, some fantastic lessons. And before I summarize, let's get a shout out to where the best ever listeners can reach you. So how, they, how can they get a hold of you and check out more of your stuff? 
Best ever listeners can uh, can reach me. Uh, best thing to do probably is to look at our best ever website, which is uh, <laughs> www.praxcap.com, which is P as in Paul, R-A-X-C-A-P as in Paul, dot com. It's short for Praxis Capital, our related company, Praxis Residential. Uh, those two firms are, are uh, multifamily acquisition and syndication firms. And uh, there's phone numbers and email addresses and so forth on there. And, uh, you know, we'd, uh, we'd love to talk to whoever uh, is interested in checking out what we're doing. Wow. I don't even know where to begin on this page and a half notes that I have from our conversation. But I'll, I'll start with the end because that right now is fresh on my mind and it stands out where you'd rather be a guy who never buys a deal than buys a bad deal because it's always easier to get into a deal than it is to get out of one that isn't performing. And the story of you servicing the $1.5 million loan where you're paying $15,000 a month for not one, not two, but three years. I mean, that I imagine is as impactful of a story when you're speaking to new investors as it is any uh, any type of return that you've generated on the successful projects, uh, and again, it sounds like that that project ended up being ended up working out. But just that story about your dedication to the investors, I mean, that that just speaks volumes about who you are as a person, your character, and and your your commitment to uh, to the success of your investors. Um, what what an incredible and inspiring and story that I think we should all take to heart as as we as we build our businesses and you know the cap rate confusion really interesting very interesting stuff on how you can give you know you can you can give maybe six or seven different cap rates based on whatever property based on really how you run those numbers and and what you project out so really the focus should be on using cap rates to price your exit know what you will sell the property for is the first thing you need to take into account whenever you're looking at an acquisition and then focus on the internal rate of return use a spreadsheet um, versus the cash on cash return because that talks about the internal rate of return talks about when you receive those payments because basically as, as you mentioned the internal rate of return talks about where you can reinvest that money and at what level of reinvesting that money does it does it make that calculation in your your overall return versus cash on cash return just a flat number it's, it's not three-dimensional like internal rate of return is at least that's how I, I, I view it the success of deals 75% numbers 25% real estate but you focus on the real estate portion because you've you You've uh, really seen um, how the you know the the criteria that you need is influenced based on the numbers that you underwrite and, and the the profitability of those projects. Hundred plus deals for economies of scale and staying away from master meter properties. Uh, I stay away from them myself unless it makes sense to convert them from a financial standpoint. Flat roofs versus pitch roofs. I mean, just a lot of information here, and I could go on and on. But the best ever listeners, you can just rewind this conversation if you want to to listen. I highly recommend you do if you're in the multifamily space. So, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. And is there anything else you want to mention to the best ever listeners before we sign off? No, I just really appreciate you having me on, Joe. I uh, I had a great time being here. Uh, I appreciate the kudos and and thank you for the kind words. Uh, my track record as an investment sponsor that under promises and over delivers is very important to me and and that's why I defend it at all costs and you know I I appreciate you recognizing that and had a great time being on the show and and that was a great wrap-up summary of uh, of all the key takeaways that uh, I hope you and and all the uh, best ever listeners get from uh, from all this stuff we've been talking about today thanks a lot Brian we'll talk to you soon thanks hey you best ever listener do you want more 
Then go to joefairless.com where you'll get tons of free videos, templates, and content to help you get deals done. And remember to subscribe to the best ever show in iTunes so you can keep getting your daily dose of the best real estate investing advice ever.